When I was in middle school, of course they called it junior high then, at the end of my seventh grade year, I believe it was, I had two friends over to my house, Adam and Luke. Luke was from Florida of all places, as some of you might be. And we were talking, and Luke said to me, do you have quiet times? Well, I didn't know what a quiet time was. What's he talking about? And I think I probably acted awfully cool, like I did know what he was talking about, but eventually I came to discover that he was talking about, in some way or another, setting apart my day with some kind of time. I've come to learn other traditions call it a devotion or private prayer or meditation in the Word or some kind of thing like that. And here he was in Eastridge, Tennessee, asking me if I had quiet times. They were talking about quiet times. See, I was being inaugurated into this world of walking with Jesus And it's interesting, uh, middle school students, to think about the impact you could have on your friends. Because I started to realize as I began to give myself more and more to Jesus and realize this is what life was for. This is what I was for. He was who I was for. I started having these quiet times. And I was in places where they made you, like camps and things, or if They at least had time set apart for it, where if you didn't do that, you felt silly. And eventually, I came to think of the quiet time, the devotional, the scripture reading and private prayer. Well, it became the kind of thing that I realized I had better do if I wanted to have a good game tonight. I'm supposed to pitch tonight. I better have my quiet time. I've got a test this afternoon. I better have my private time with the Lord, I want to score some points tonight. I better have my quiet time. I started to think of this like a lucky rabbit's foot, that if I did it, I was bound to have a Joel Osteen day. And if I did not do it, if I did not do it, I was bound to have a rain cloud following me through. Well, it had become something like a rabbit's foot for me, a four-leaf clover. If I do these things, God will like me. If I don't do them, God won't like me. If I want to be blessed and want life to go according to my plan, then I'll do these things. At some point, though, I ran smack dab into something way better to think about. I ran smack dab into this notion that God actually liked me whether I had a quiet time or not. And that whether I had a good day or a bad day may not have anything to do with anything. God might bless my socks off even though I'd been a crummy fellow. Like just now when I made fun of Joel Osteen. I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. (laughs) Forgive me. He represents a movement and he's the most famous one right now. It says if you do good things, God will like you and all that. Now, but I started to realize, wow, God's my father, 
made so by Jesus purely through a gift. And he actually, he actually does good to us even when we're bad. Sometimes gives us most when we deserve it least. I got liberated. Liberated from compulsory quiet times. I didn't need to have no quiet time. Someone said, you can pray all the time, which I soon learned was praying none of the time. But I gave up quiet times. I didn't need them anymore. Because I had met God's grace. But then eventually I got what Dallas Willard, who was recently deceased, called saved by grace and then paralyzed by it. Which happens to a lot of people. You can get saved by grace and then get strangled by it. You can get saved by grace and then immobilized by it. And that's what happened to me after a while. And then something else in my development happened. I started to realize more and more as I was introduced to myself. My deficiencies, my defects, my insecurities, my anxieties, my rottenness, my envies, my jealousies, my lusts, my out-of-control desires... I started to realize I got to have quiet times because I can't live without God. I got to have time in prayer. I got to go to the scriptures because I don't want to live without being animated by words and life from heaven. See, it wasn't something I had to do. It was something I couldn't not do. It wasn't something I felt like if I don't do this, God's not going to like me. I, I started to think God likes me. And I want to like him back. And I've learned that when I come here in private to him, I start getting a kind of life from him. I start getting changed from him. And so I started realizing what a lot of the Bible teaches a lot. That God actually responds to us. And as we look at what Jesus is saying here, in the third of his examples, under the heading of Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. And then he says, so when you fast, I mean when you give, don't broadcast it. Don't call the news. Don't tweet about it. When you give, do it privately. And then God will reward you. When you pray, don't pray over a bullhorn. Pray privately to your God who's unseen. And the unseen God Well, he'll reward you. And this is his third example. And he talks about fasting. When you fast, he says. And as I've said, and I'm just starting there. As I've said for the last two things, Jesus is assuming. When he says, when you fast, that we will fast. This is the one part of the Christian life that has been least taught in my experience as a discipline for us to do today. But Jesus a Jewish person, knew that this was a kind of habit of holiness, a a movement of the heart, a spiritual discipline, we would call it, that anybody who wanted to have a life with God would be involved in certain kinds of practices, and one of them would be fasting. And so Jesus is telling us, here's how to fast. He's not telling us not to ever fast. He's just telling us the wrong way to do it and the right way to do it. And before we get into that particularly, I want to talk about a bigger First point, to keep us from being saved by grace and then paralyzed by it. And that is this. The Bible teaches at the same time God's sovereignty and the value of our seeking Him. 
One of the most wonderful things about the scriptures that you can really lean hard into is this notion that all the days of my life were ordained for me before one of them was left. This whole idea that God is somehow mysteriously managing all your moments. He's he's ruling over all of the recreation of your life. He's, He's actively overseeing and choreographing all your conversations and all your life and all the events that happen to you. God is the ruler of all of that stuff. It's the only way it could be the case that we can say things like, so we know that God works for the good in all things of those who love him being called according to his purpose. God can convert evil things to good things. He can make horrible things, redemptive things. He's in control of everything. But now, you put that in the right kind of Christian community, and you could come up with the kind of way of thinking like this. Well, everything depends on God's grace. Everything depends on God. So I can't do anything. Whatever's going to be, is going to be. I can't force God's hand. He's God. He does whatever He wants. Our God is in the heavens. He's got big muscles. You can't make those muscles budge, budge, budge. They already bulge. But you know, here's the interesting thing. Alongside this idea of God's sovereignty and Him moving all things and controlling all things are all these ways of talking in the Bible that say things like, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For everyone who comes to him must believe that he earnestly rewards those who seek him. And when they say things like that, it makes it sound like that God actually earnestly rewards those that seek him because it explicitly says he earnestly rewards those who seek him. And I'm not a masterful exegete, but you've got to do something with that. And then James repeats the chorus saying things like, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then Jeremiah adds his voice too in the prophets saying, you will find the Lord when you seek him with all your heart. Huh. This makes it sound like God responds to us. This makes it sound like some kind of effort and movement and attentiveness on our part might get God's attention. Well, that couldn't be. And then you look at places like The great story of Jonah. You know the story? You've seen VeggieTales, right? The people of Nineveh weren't actually slapping each other with fish. That wasn't their main evilness. That's in the VeggieTales story. But in Jonah, you had a situation where the Ninevites were ultra-wicked people, a militaristic nation of Assyria, And God sent Jonah, and then reluctantly he finally goes, because God forced his hand. And he goes, right? And he says, Ninevites, you who make Al-Qaeda seem like a bunch of choir boys, God's about to lay down the atomic hammer. He's going to push the button, and weapons of mass destruction are going to descend on you, and the whole nation is going to be destroyed. God lays out his intention. This is what is going to happen to you because God hates your wickedness. He hates it. And so you're done. Well, the king gets word of this, that this crazy person's been walking around the city pronouncing impending doom. The sandwich board around his neck. 
And the king does this peculiar thing. He doesn't say, get the chariots together, line up the horses and the battalions. He says, do not put out food for Fido. Don't give any milk to little Snowball the kitten. Don't feed Bessie, your heifer. Don't feed animals. Don't feed your grandma or your aunt or your son or your daddy. There ain't nobody for three days, not even an animal, is going to eat. Everybody's fasting. Everybody's fasting. He declares a fast, which was the same thing as saying, we better humble ourselves and take note because the Lord of the hosts, the leader of the armies of the Lord, of the Lord is about to unleash some firepower on us, and we don't want that. And so they listen to God, and they say, Ah! Oh! And they don't eat. They fast. They respond to what God says, and they, they humble themselves, and they don't take food. And you know what God does? Good. That's what I wanted, he says. Because like all good parents, and I say good parents, sometimes when you're a parent, you want to give punishment to your kids because they're annoying you that badly. But most of the time, good parents, when they threaten punishment, they do not want to punish. They're hoping that the threat creates repentance. They're hoping that the threat creates a, a turnaround, some kind of receptiveness, some kind of responsiveness. Nothing makes me happier as a father than not to have to Bring down the hammer like I have threatened. And nothing makes God happier either. And so he relents from sending the calamity. But see, and there, these people who had no familiarity with him knew if we're attentive to God, he might listen to us. King David, when he's being punished, he's been told his son's going to die because of his adultery. He fasts and he prays. He says, who knows? God's merciful. He might relent. Esther calls a fast. For the nation, for protection, for her people. All over the Bible, we are urged to believe that the things we do, these private practices, giving ourselves secretly to God, going without food in this case, God says through Jesus Christ, his representation on earth, when you fast, take a shower. Put on your aqua velva. You guys wear aqua velva? I don't know who wears it. Somebody probably does. They sell it. Shave, shower, get dressed up. Don't let people think that you're doing some kind of religious thing. And the God who sees what you're doing in secret will reward you. He'll reward you. Flannery O'Connor is an author that all of you should read. Some of you have been forced to read and others of you have chosen to read. And hopefully being forced led you to choose. But Flannery O'Connor, like many writers, has answered this question this way. Where do you get the inspiration to write? How does the muse come to you? Where do you get your ideas? See, there's this romantic notion among young people who want to write that you just you wait till something strikes you. It usually happens at 2 in the morning. You stay up all night and you write self-absorbed poetry. But she said this. She said, you know what I do? 8 a.m. every morning, I show up at my writing desk so that 
If inspiration comes by or if a thought comes by, I'm there to catch it and put it down. I just show up because I've learned that if I show up, something might happen. This is very much the way that Christians have thought about what's called the means of grace. We can talk about these spiritual disciplines like fasting, like refraining from something that's normally good, like called food, for a spiritual purpose of saying, I want God so much. I'm going to go without his good creation, his lawful and beneficial creation. I'm going to go without it for a while to put myself in the posture of being able to receive from him, of being able to be changed by him, of being able to be filled up by him in my emptiness to learn how to depend on him. Some of you who practice these things realize that that's something of what happens. You don't always feel like fasting if you do. You don't always feel like praying if you do. You don't always feel like reading or memorizing scripture if you do. But often if you show up, if you put the sailboat out in the water and you raise the sail, the wind might just come by. You can't make it happen, but you can make yourself attentive and open To say, here I am, God, drawing near to you like you promised, draw near to me. Don't be paralyzed by grace. See, it's interesting, isn't it? I've seen this happen to lots of people. They come into full contact with the the warmth and wonder of God's grace And then all of a sudden, it immobilizes them from doing anything good for fear that they're going to be legalists. How can the thing that's meant to enliven us with the life of heaven immobilize us? We're getting the wrong version. Sovereignty and seeking go together. And Jesus wants us to note it. But there's another thing. Jesus calls for us not to put our righteousness on display like the hypocrites would. Because, in fact, a hypocrite, you know, is a a Greek actor, they would wear a mask. You didn't have makeup people. You wore a mask and you would go on stage. The first century Brad Pitts, they didn't have their elegant faces. They had a mask. And the issue, he's saying, for religious people is that you can start to wear this mask and live for the approval, the applause, the the notice of other eyes, and live exclusively for that, and then you get kind of what you wanted. They applaud, and that's your reward, and that's that. But he says, no, no, I think underneath your habits of holiness, underneath these righteousnesses that you're acting on, you want God. So tell you what, do. Practice these things in secrecy. Secrecy is your safeguard. Practice them in secrecy. Now, let me say a thing about that. There are some of you in here who are particularly conscientious, particularly scrupulous, and you're going to, you might take these words seriously and say, I'm going to fast. And then your wife finds out that you're fasting that day. And you're like, oh, no, it's not going to work. No, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about. If you live in a family, and you're fasting, if anybody in the family is fasting, probably the other people are going to know. If you, you know, the sign will be you're not eating at supper time or something. Jesus isn't saying no one can ever know ever. 
In fact, there are times when whole groups will fast together. He's saying, watch that you're not doing something merely so that other people will say, what a religious fellow that is. Oh, look at their devotion. Man. You know, you kind of, this is all for the Lord. He said, stop that. Secrecy is your safeguard. Here's what will happen to you. It will prevent this kind of thing. A pastor was talking to a man in his congregation, and the man, as has happened to me many times, the man happened to cuss, you know, he said some cuss words. And often people think when they say a cuss word to a pastor, the pastor's going to instantly melt like a witch getting water poured on her. When really pastors, good pastors can cuss better than anybody. If you know the sin of the world, you learn how to cuss. Now, that's another topic another day. But here's what the guy said. Instead of apologizing, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, which is what people normally do when they cuss in front of a religious professional. This guy said, oh, it's all right, Pastor. I cuss a little and you pray a little, but neither of us means anything by it. (laughs) I think that's called a dig. But you know, the biggest danger for we religious types, we know that we ought to pray and we ought to give and we ought to serve people and be sweet and all that stuff. It's very possible that we get to where we don't really expect God's involvement in anything. We don't really mean it. We don't really expect God's involvement, do we? Do we expect the resurrected Christ on the scene in our parenting or in our business? Or It can get easy to not really mean it. And these disciplines of secrecy, when you get weaned off of the eyes and the applause of the world, this is the place as you fast, as you empty yourself and humble yourself before God and you receive empowering, you receive grace from Him, as you accompany it with prayer, your belief starts to embolden. It starts to be fortified. You start to expect that this stuff is not just something we do to look pious. This is something we do to tap into the energy that keeps the sun going. This is something we do to tap into the love that formed the world and changes everything. This is something we do to tap into the resurrected Christ who is opposed to the ruin of the world. And you start to believe it in secret. You really do. I hope some of you have tasted that. You start to believe, oh my goodness, this might actually be true. I might be able to act on this. Secrecy helps you to mean it. So when you fast, put on your oil on your head and wash your face. The oil is in the first century. That's just part of you. It's like skin care, you know, like when you put lotion on. Wash your face so that it won't be obvious to men you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. Sovereignty and seeking, they go together. Secrecy helps us to come to mean it with God. The other thing that happens with fasting is it helps to focus you. Jesus is wanting us to fast for our Father in heaven with eye toward Him. See, one of the things that Mike Mason has said about marriage, which I think can be applied to Christians of all sorts, he says most married people are simply trying to do too much. And what he means by that is you've taken these vows... To be all about the other person. You've taken these vows to commit to this person. And it's an utterly unique situation. Those of you who are married, you may not realize you did this. But 
You promised something. You've never done this to anybody else, anywhere else. We don't do this as a course of action. You made promises to one person, and they to you, that you were going to be all about them. You were going to stick with them. You were going to love them no matter how big they got. Remember, Kathy. I need helps. You're going to love them. You were going to be for them, right? Now, what happens is, in a marriage... Well, you, you get pulled in 50 different directions. There's work to do, and there's a house to maintain, and there's children to taxi everywhere. There's fights to referee. There's church involvement. There's all kinds of stuff that's constantly pulling you away from each other, potentially. So it's very important that you have ways of focusing on these commitments that you've made to each other. And in a very real sense, the Bible says, you, if you're in relationship to Jesus, you're married to him. Fasting is kind of like a date night. These secret disciplines are kind of a way to say, you know what's very extra special important to me? My relationship with my spouse. So there are certain things I'm going to stop doing so that I can give full attention to my spouse. And for a Christian, that's to our Lord. Whether you're married or single, I'm about Jesus. I belong to him. I need to be empowered by him. I need to know what he thinks about things. I need him to change me. So fasting, what it does is it kind of, as one Catholic priest said, it de-routinizes your life, which I think is an actual word in the dictionary, de-routinizes. I may have my accents wrong. You get in a routine, right? Routines lend themselves to ruts. And so in your spiritual life, this can happen. You've got, think of this, you wake up in the morning, you're tired, you hit the coffee, you rush out the door, getting people places, you've got meetings all day. You've got practices at night. You finally go into bed at some point in a dizzying array of activities through the day, and you think, oh, good, I get to do this same exact thing tomorrow and for the rest of the next 60 years. Hallelujah, what a life this is. Where's Jesus? Where, where's the involvement of God? Where's the abundant life? Where is this being empowered by the Spirit? Well, one of the things that fasting does is it de-routinizes things. In the middle of your normal routine, you say, one thing I'm going to take out is eating. And the time I'd spend eating, I'm going to give attention to God. I'm going to learn how to feast on every word that comes out from the mouth of God. I'm going to attach it to my prayers. I'm going to open myself up to receive grace from God so that He can be in my normal, everyday life. So that I'm not just going through the motions. And what will happen is that this starts to close some of the gap that we all feel. There's a great gap between the life that we profess as believers and the life that we know is going on inside of us. That's why we get accused of being hypocrites and why we know we're hypocrites. There's a big gap. And these disciplines of secrecy help close that gap to some extent because they get us in touch with the one who's remaking us. They're a way of pausing to say, I've got to draw near to this one. So what if, what if you started to fast in some way? What if you found yourself, for instance, I'm just being hypothetical because I don't think this would affect anybody in here. What if you found yourself as somebody who was deeply resentful at some other people for some things they had done? That's as specific as I'll be. What if you said, boy, I think I might need to, I need to have like a will replacement. 
I need to be undone and reoriented and rewired on the inside. And so, like I take my car into the shop and I wouldn't have it for a while, I think I'm going to take myself into the shop with God and I'm going to not eat for a while. Maybe it's just a meal. Maybe I'll start doing it once a week. Maybe it's a day. Some of you can do longer. I mean, some of you, if you're like me, like going 45 minutes without a meal might frighten you. God will give grace, whatever it is. I'm being a little facetious. I can go 50 minutes. But you say, Lord, I need to be reoriented. Maybe your struggles with sexual addiction in some way. N.T. Wright in some place says, hey, you think in the most sexualized culture in the history of the earth, you're going to get chastity by saying one prayer for sexual release from your captivity? (laughs) What if you gave yourself to God and said, you know what, God? I am in bondage to my resentments, to my idols of whatever sort, to my sexual addictions, to eating, to drugs, to worrying over my children. And I need you more than I need food. I'm going to humble myself before you and say, please rework me, rework my family, rework my business, rework my church, rework my children, rework me on the inside. If you've ever noticed with your children, sometimes if you take away video games or you take away television, sometimes children actually actually start to act like humans, the quasi-human people, just by getting off all those stimulants. I think fasting creates us to be somewhat like humans too. We get in touch with him who is the model of humanity and he comes to live in us more. So, here's the challenge. I'm closing. And I'm closing by reading this. In Acts 13, the church at Antioch, they had some prophets, they had teachers like Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, you don't have to remember any of this, and Saul that you know is the Apostle Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You know what's intriguing to me about that is the early church didn't get the memo that grace meant they shouldn't fast anymore. They weren't fasting to make God like them. They were fasting because they needed spiritual resources. So they emptied themselves and they earnestly sought God because they needed God. And as they corporately fasted and prayed together in worship, God gave them this idea. Hey, how about send out the most successful church planner in the history of the world? Pretty interesting. Apostle Paul was sent out as a result of that fasting and prayer. Well, that's pretty cool if you think about it. So here's my challenge. On Wednesday, you might have heard me say about 30 minutes ago that we are going to have summer supper and prayer. We're going to have it on Wednesdays throughout the summer. So here's a challenge to the congregation. It's not a foreign challenge. How about on Wednesdays, we all don't eat lunch. Lunch, that's, just, that's not a long fast. And then we break our fast together as we pray. We eat barbecue chicken. We enjoy God's goodnesses and we pray after we've been fasting as a group so that we can say to God, we want more of you in our lives. And we want to be more yours. And we don't know how to make that happen. 
We don't know what the future holds for us. We want to be active in church planning. We want to be active in the lives of the poor. We want to be active in raising little people who love and adore Jesus. We want to have good marriages. We want to be people who are joyful and who worship the Lord with gladness. And we can't make that happen. We're desperate for you, so we're going to go without food. And we're going to seek you together. Now, we're going to do that in secret. I'm calling for this corporately. But no one's going to ask you to check a box if you come on Wednesday night. Did you eat lunch? So there's nothing to feel guilty about. It's an invitation. If you don't do it, God will still like you an awful lot. But would you try it? A few years ago in seminary, a friend and I used to fast on Thursdays. And we would break our fast that night at CC's Pizza. (laughs) And I had always come to believe after those times, hey, I think I might be counterbalancing the spiritual benefit I just achieved by eating four pizzas specially made for me at CC's for only four ninety-five. I wonder why I have a chronic intestinal issue. So, but you know what I, has also occurred to me, though? I used to think, yeah, so my gluttony kind of outweighed the benefit of the fasting. Well, I've come to see that maybe that's not just right. Because fasting is not a perpetual state for us. See, God has given good things in the world to enjoy, but those good things become competition for him. So in fasting, what you do is you say for a time, for seasons, occasionally, every now and again, sometimes regularly, I'm going to go without good creation food because I want the creator. And then, well, then you celebrate Because most of life is learning to appreciate and enjoy what God has given us, to learn to share it, to learn to enjoy it. It's all a gift. So I kind of think, maybe CeCe's Pizza ain't so bad. Well, it's bad. But maybe celebrating that way wasn't a bad way to break a fast with my Christian brother. We're celebrating God's goodness together in the form of pepperoni. Now, Do you believe that God earnestly rewards those who seek Him? What if you did? What if you earnestly sought Him? Through prayer, through fasting? What if you joined us on Wednesdays, not eating and coming on Wednesday night praying with us, seeing what God might do? What if He actually does reward those who seek Him with all their hearts? Amen.